God, may I call you God? Of course I can. Wow, I feel so silly trying to talk to you. Let me start over. Okay, forget I said any of this. Wow, this was a big interview. In fact, this one determines whether I get the job. God, you know how much I need this job. I need a new car, I need to get these medical bills paid. Tuition is due soon. But I pray your will be done. Wow, God, you are amazing. I'm amazed at all that you've created. I look at all of the detail and just wonder how you can have the ability to care about just little old me. I can't believe I keep going back to doing the same thing, even though I know I shouldn't. It's so hard to break the habit. This is the last time, I promise. Lord, why my wife? Couldn't you have prevented this? I prayed for her health all of the time. Why did you allow this? It doesn't seem fair to me. Why does everyone else get a healthy spouse? Okay, God, see, it's the big exam today. I studied, but I don't know if I can pull this off. So can you please give me the answer? Can you please calm my nerves so I can do it? Will you be with me and kind of let me know the answers? Seriously? How did I just lose my job? I really don't get it. What did I do to make you hate me so much? How will I provide for my family? How can I keep going? So much for you being in charge down here. Okay, God, since I don't know if he's the right guy for me, I need a sign, so have him call me now. Okay, for real this time, now. Okay, so how am I supposed to figure this out? Can you send me a text? Twitter? Facebook? Anything? Well, God, it could have been worse, I guess. In fact, a lot worse. So, thanks for making it bearable. Your scripture promises a way of escape, and it seems you have here for me. Thank you. Well, as you can see, our topic for uh, this morning is the topic of prayer. And in fact, that's going to be our topic for the next several weeks as we dive into a new series together. And a little bit later on, we're going to be praying specifically for the educators in our community. I know we have some special guests with us today, and so we want to start off our school year with God and with prayer, and so you can be looking forward to that as well. Well, I wonder if you've ever had any of these thoughts about prayer. I should pray more. I feel guilty that I don't pray more. 
I just don't have a lot of desire to pray. I feel condemned and guilty when I try to pray. I don't understand prayer. God never answered my prayers, so I just stopped praying. Praying seems foolish to me. I feel drawn to pray, but I don't know what to say. I'm embarrassed to pray out loud when other people are around. When I hear others pray, I wish I could pray like they do. I feel intimidated by people who can pray better than I can. I got turned off to prayer by something that happened in the past in my life. How many of you have ever had any of those thoughts about prayer? Can I see your hands? Yeah, like most all of us, huh? Honestly, I don't think I know any believers who haven't had at least some thoughts like those somewhere along the line, somewhere along the line of their journey. You know, as I began thinking about prayer, I recalled some of the prayers that I learned as a kid growing up. One of my friends in elementary school always thanked God for his food in the cafeteria there by bowing his head, and he prayed this, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food, amen. Unfortunately, whenever I heard that prayer, I was always distracted by the fact that the words good and food didn't exactly rhyme, and so it kind of messed me up. At mealtime in our home, my parents usually offered this prayer, bless this food to our bodies, dear Lord. And that sounded better, but I wasn't quite sure exactly what it meant. Then I remember being at church picnics and other food-filled gatherings where I would hear people pray like this before we ate, Lord, bless this food and the hands that prepared it. And that did sound spiritual to me, but I always wondered, why just their hands? I mean, why not pray for their whole body, you know? Anyway, what I was getting is that anytime that there's food, then it's a good idea to pray and to give thanks for it. Another good time to pray, I found out, is bedtime. I'm curious, how many of you grew up having been taught a prayer to pray at night at bedtime? Can I see your hands? Okay, lots and lots of us. Um, As a kid, I learned to say this comforting prayer before pillowing my head at night and heading off into dreamland. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. I like the rhyme there sleep and keep. If I should die before I wake. (laughs) Yikes, you know, when you're like seven years old, that's a terrifying prospect. Anyway, if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Amen. I prayed that prayer just about every night as a little kid. It was kind of scary, but it also seemed to kind of wrap up the day's activities pretty neatly and tie a bow on it. It felt good. Later, I told my mom that I was having uh, bad dreams, scary dreams at night, which usually happened after watching Alfred Hitchcock movies with my dad or (laughs) Wolfman meets Frankenstein or something like that. And so she taught me to add a little addendum onto my nightly prayer. And Lord, please have control over my dreams and thoughts tonight. And that did seem to help, although, you know, stop watching horror flicks also helped too. (laughs) I was also taught to confess my sins to God at night before I went to sleep. And so that was usually along the lines of, please forgive me, God, for having bad thoughts today or for disobeying my parents or for tackling my little sisters in the hallway and pinning them to the ground. I did feel kind of bad about some of the things that I was doing and confessing my sins to God at night in prayer seemed to ease my guilty conscience a little bit. 
One thing I know I picked up from hearing other people pray was that you should always pray when you are in trouble or when you're about to be in trouble. And so I heard many prayers that were along the lines of, Dear God, please get me out of this mess. Please get me out of this jam I'm in. Sometimes those prayers would be followed by huge promises, like, And if you do this for me, I will never miss church again. I'll give a million dollars. I'll memorize the whole Bible. I'll serve you forever. All those kinds of things. Those kinds of prayers made it seem like prayer was a way of trying to get help from God and maybe convince him to do so by bartering with him and offering him things that he apparently wanted. I also heard a lot of prayers for people who were sick or people who had been injured or who were dying. And so I figured praying was what you did when doctors really couldn't do much to help. I bring up some of my own prayer history just as a way of illustrating that we all probably have certain notions and concepts of prayer rattling around in our heads that were born out of our own experiences, especially if you were raised in church. Even if you weren't raised in church, I imagine there were probably times when you had some sort of inkling or inclination to talk to someone out there, God or a higher power. Maybe it was when some disaster struck in your life or a breakup or something happened in the world that had caught your attention. So we're all here today with some prepackaged notions about prayer, what it is, when we should do it, how we should do it, what we should say or not say, all of that. And so knowing that, I have two challenges for us this morning. And the first is this, let's all get our hearts, as we enter into this series, let's get our hearts in a state of being open to new thoughts about prayer. Can you do that? Let's get our hearts in a, in a state of being compliant and willing to learn new things about prayer. And second, let's all determine to let our thoughts about prayer be shaped by the word of God and by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's let the gospel shape our prayers and how we think about prayer. And so in this series, I'm asking the Lord to lead, a, lead us, to lead each of us on this journey into gospel-prompted, gospel-enabled, gospel-enriched prayer. And so to start out, I think we should begin not with talking about the need for prayer or techniques for prayer or postures of prayer or even learning the content of prayers. We'll get to all that later. Instead, I want us to step back further and ask the more basic question. How is praying to God even possible? How is it that human beings can even think that they could approach the almighty holy God in prayer. And for me, there's something about discovering the answer to that question that has begun to stimulate a deep hunger in me to pray more, to draw near to God. And I've chosen that little phrase, draw near, to be our overarching theme for this series. Draw near. Would you say it with me? Draw near. It's a beautiful rich, glorious phrase. It's found a lot in Scripture. It speaks of this privilege that God has given His people to approach Him. And we see it in the Bible as an invitation. Draw near. It tells us that prayer is possible. It's been made possible for us. I love Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That's good, isn't it? James 4.8, a wonderful promise. Draw near to God, and he will draw near 
to you. Draw near. The Bible tells us over and over again that God invites his people to draw near, to approach him, to come in close. And not just to draw near, but to do so boldly and with confidence, without cringing in fear or hesitating in doubt, not kind of backing into his presence slowly, worried about being consumed, not feeling unqualified or unworthy to be there, but actually drawing near with confidence and with boldness. How can this be? That brings us to our primary text of Scripture for today, found in Hebrews chapter 10. And there is a, a study guide in your worship folder if you're a guest with us today, so you can pull that out and follow along with us. Hebrews 10, chapter 10, verse 19, listen to the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There is one single truth that I want all of us this morning to grasp and to ponder and to mull over and to allow to sink deep into our spirits today, and it's this. God's people enjoy access to God Not because of anything we have done for God, but only because of what Jesus has done for God on our behalf. Let me say it a different way. We can approach God in prayer only on the basis of Christ's finished priestly work for us. Let me say it differently, another way of putting it. The gospel of Jesus Christ once believed doesn't just save us from the penalty of our sin, but it actually shreds the partition that prevented us from entering God's presence, thus making a way for us to commune directly with God. In short, prayer is a purchased privilege. Would you say that with me? Prayer is a purchased privilege. It's true. And if upon hearing that you say to yourself, well, of course, duh, I know that. You know, what else you got for me? Then I would suspect that you do not yet grasp the enormity of what God has done for us in Christ. But I'm praying that God will open all of our eyes to that more this morning. Let's talk about this for a bit. This letter to the Hebrews that we find in our New Testament was written to Hebrews, Jews, God's specially chosen people. And we know that the Jews were descendants of Abraham. They traced their lineage from Abraham down through Isaac and then through his son Jacob. And you might recall in your Bible reading in the Old Testament that Jacob's descendants had to relocate down to Egypt because there was a famine at the time up in the land of Israel. And so the whole family went down south to Egypt and they ended up being enslaved in Egypt under the tyranny of Pharaoh for 400 years. The book of Exodus records then the awesome account of how God heard the cries of his oppressed people who were making bricks for Pharaoh and oppressed and they cried out and God raised up a great deliverer, Moses, 
who liberated God's people, emancipated them from Pharaoh's oppressive rule. You recall that God miraculously led his people out of Egypt, through the Red Sea on dry ground, into the Sinai wilderness. And there, at the base of Mount Sinai, they were given the law of God, the moral law of God, which was a testimony to the holiness of this God who had delivered them out of Egypt. The two stone tablets contained the inscription of God's moral laws that required his people to honor him above all else and to treat people in loving ways. The Lord gave further instructions to his people. He prescribed the construction of a tabernacle, kind of a portable worship center that was to accompany the children of Israel on their journey to the promised land. Tabernacle was actually a large tent placed in the middle of a courtyard that was bounded by a fence. And inside that tent, it was divided into two spaces, two sections, the holy place and then the inner chamber, the most holy place, sometimes called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is where the famous Ark of the Covenant was placed. You know about the Ark, right? You watch the Indiana Jones movies, right? Well, the ark actually predated all of that. The ark was a stunning, exquisitely crafted, golden container, a box fashioned, as I said, out of gold. It housed some of the artifacts of Israel's history. Covering the opening to the ark was a golden lid called the mercy seat. And at opposite ends of this lid stood two golden angels, two cherubim facing each other. And it was there, between the golden cherubim, on the mercy seat, in the Holy of Holies, that the blood of animal sacrifices was sprinkled by the high priest onto that mercy seat. It was also there where God promised to dwell and manifest his glory, his Shekinah glory, in the midst of his people. Now, I mentioned this curtain or this veil that was hung inside the tent that created the two spaces. It served as a partition, a a barrier, and it symbolized the truth that access to God is restricted. Access to God is limited. It wasn't open to just anyone, only to one person, the high priest, who served as a mediator for the people. Now, eventually the tabernacle went away and a more permanent temple was established in its place. Once the children of Israel actually entered the promised land and were established there, they constructed temples, which kept getting destroyed, and they have to rebuild it and destroy it and rebuild it. But the temple resembled the tabernacle and how it was laid out, including these two rooms. And again, there was a, a curtain or a veil that divided up those two rooms. And sometimes when you, when you hear the word curtain, you get the idea of what you've got hung in your kitchen, right? This thing was four inches thick, the width of your palm, That's a thick curtain. It was 60 feet high. So that's three times as high as those draperies, three times those, 30 feet wide. It was this huge, imposing barrier that let people know that access to God is restricted. Behind the veil is where God dwelt. Well, back to the tabernacle again. Along with instructions for the tabernacle came instructions for this elaborate system of sacrifices, animal 
sacrifices. And many, many, many different kinds of sacrifices were prescribed to be offered for the sins of the people. And these sacrifices always required bloodshed, always bloodshed, over and over and over again. Blood spilled out, the carcass of a dead animal offered on the altar, fire set to it, consumed, smoke arising to the skies. Once a year, a man called the high priest was commanded on what is now called Yom Kippur to first cleanse himself with, some, with various ceremonial washings, cleanse his body, put on a special garment, make his way through the courtyard into the holy place, carrying a basin or a bowl full of blood from a slain animal. Then he would make his way behind the veil And there in that most holy place, he would take blood and sprinkle it once upward and seven times downward onto the mercy seat. And there he would make atonement for the sins of the people, for himself and the sins of the people for that year. If that high priest failed to carry out his duty in the prescribed manner, what happened? Curtains for the high priest, really. They would pull out his lifeless body and realize that something had gone awry, something had gone amiss there inside the Holy of Holies. So being high priest was a serious business not to be taken lightly. So all of this, through all of this repeated ceremony and these washings and sacrifices and all of these prescribed worship rituals, God was teaching his people about himself and about how he was to be approached, how he was to be related to. He was teaching them a myriad of truths, but five truths stand out to me in particular. Through all of that ceremony and ritual, God was saying several things. First, he was saying, I am holy. More holy than you could ever think or imagine. I am full of holiness, and I am full of righteous wrath against sin, And I am rightly separated from any and all sin and sinners. He was also saying this, Sin against me must be sufficiently atoned for according to my instructions or my holy wrath will consume you. Third, he was saying this, The sins of my people are only atoned for through the shedding of innocent blood. As Leviticus says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Fourth, through all of this sacrificial system, God was saying, no one may approach or draw near to me without blood. To do so is to be consumed by my holiness. And fifth, God was saying, you need a representative to do this for you, a mediator who will present the blood on your behalf. So the Lord God Almighty, the Holy One of Israel, the great lawgiver, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was prescribing for his people a pattern for how he was to be approached. And under the old covenant, it was clear to everyone that because of God's holiness and the people's sinfulness, access to God was restricted, limited to one person, one time a year, always requiring blood, and even then dangerous. Every little Jewish boy understood this. Every little Jewish girl brought up in that culture understood this. They saw it day in, day out, year in, year out. They, they, they got it. Then, 
at just the prescribed moment in history, enter Jesus Christ, the promised one. The one who came, slipped into that garment of human flesh, lived his life, actually kept all of God's moral law perfectly. The only one to ever do that. No one before or since has ever done so. The one who then, though he was completely righteous, allowed himself to be arrested, questioned, mocked, ridiculed, spit upon, whipped, humiliated, and then crucified. And in that moment, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and they plunged the spear into his side, tearing his flesh open and blood and water poured out and he cried out, it is finished and committed his spirit unto God, something very unusual happened, recorded in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one. Several hundred yards away from where Jesus was being crucified, this happened. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In that agonizing moment when Christ's own flesh was being torn open, God ripped open the veil in the temple. Not from bottom to top, signifying that man did it, but from top to bottom, signifying this is the work of God. God is tearing open the veil, symbolically opening up access because of the sacrificed body of Christ. And we know that in the act of being crucified, Jesus himself became both that sacrificial lamb, spilling his own blood for the sins of the people, and also the great high priest going behind the curtain to atone for the sins and be our mediator. So no more sacrifices would ever be needed. No more high priests would ever be needed. Jesus was the consummation and fulfillment of all the pictures and foreshadowings and promises contained under the old covenant. That's why, as Jared mentioned to us two weeks ago, when he was done with that work, he sat down. It's done. It's done. And so now, under the new covenant, men and women can actually draw near to God. We can approach God without fear of being consumed by his blazing holiness, without fear that someone's going to have to drag our body out from the secret place, if we approach God with faith in Christ's sacrifice. Now, all of that is the backstory for what we see in the book of Hebrews. Let's look at our passage again, maybe with new eyes. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That makes more sense now. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his own flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, here it is, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith and our hearts sprinkled clean sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Does this make more sense now with the background? I see several things here. First, let us draw near. This tells us God not only permits, but he invites his people to draw near to him. It says, by the new and living way that he opened for us, that he opened for us. You see, access to the presence of God was not achieved by our own doing but was provided for us. It's interesting, this word new, by the new and living way, the word new in the original, it's the only time it's ever used in the New Testament, and it means freshly slaughtered, freshly slain. 
a new, freshly slaughtered way. Interesting. That he opened for us. It says, by the blood of Jesus. You know what? This privilege we have of access to God, of praying, is a costly privilege. When I get up in the morning and I get my cup of coffee and I go to my place of prayer and I begin to talk to my daddy, my father, begin to pour my heart out to him and seek to hear his voice and ask him for things, that privilege, which I sometimes take lightly, actually cost Jesus a lot to provide me with that privilege. Cost him his blood. He became our sacrificial lamb, our great high priest. It says we have confidence to enter in full assurance of faith. That's because it's based on Jesus' performance for us, not our performance for God. (laughs) You know, I'm coming to agree with those who believe that growth in the Christian life begins not with behaving better, but with believing better. Let me say that again. Growth in your Christian life and in mine begins not with trying to act better and behave better, but by believing better. What has been done for us? Do you really believe that Jesus did everything necessary to open the way for you to have access to God? When you or I hesitate or we shrink back because we feel guilty or unworthy, in essence, we're saying, I don't really believe it. It wasn't enough somehow. It's got to be based at least some on how well I'm doing in my Christian life, how well I'm obeying. And when we know, as we do, that we still sin and we're not perfect, then we say, well, why would God allow me to draw near? This is yet another reason why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves and to each other all the time. I feel like I've been like a broken record the last two years with you guys in saying to you, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just for non-believers, it's for Christians too. You gotta get this. It's for us. I like what one man said. He said, the gospel doesn't just ignite the Christian life and get it going, but it's the fuel that keeps Christians going and growing every day. We need to hear the gospel a lot as Christians. I need to. Why? Because it's foreign. It's outside of us. Law, however, is within us. Law is our native language. We know we don't measure up. We know we don't live the way God requires us to live. We know we fall short. We know we feel guilty about that. That's native to us. The law is inscribed on our hearts, the Bible says. Law is native, but gospel is foreign. What? A crucified God tore a veil and made a way for me to enter into it? What? That's startling. That's surprising. That's good news. That's an announcement that we need to rehearse and recite and reiterate and repeat to each other a lot because it's the fuel for the way we live our lives. And when you marinate in gospel truth, when you soak and saturate your soul in gospel truth, you will find that that gospel sinks deep and begins to put down roots in your soul and begins to bear fruit of loving obedience. And you'll find as a Christian that it's no longer, well, I have to do this because God tells me I have to. You'll want to obey Christ. His commands will not be burdensome any longer. They will be the delight of your soul. Oh, we need to get this. 
It says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, a condemning conscience. We know what that is, right? A guilty conscience that tells us we're not fit to get within even a mile of God's throne. But when we really believe the gospel, our hearts, it says, are sprinkled clean. And there it is. That's another image from the Holy of Holies where the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. And the sins of the people were cleansed. You see, we have a great high priest who first shed his own innocent blood for us. And now, the Bible says, he ever lives to make intercession for us at the right hand of the Father so that when our own consciences accuse us or the evil one accuses us, Jesus steps forward and says, but my blood was shed for them. They are cleansed. (laughs) Conscience, you can accuse no longer. Their sins are covered. See, all this is great news, but there's something else in here. As I looked over my notes on Thursday, I saw this. This is so good. This reinforces what I learned on my study break this year. Now, Now listen, here's what it says. Let us draw near to God. You see that, right? And so that's an invitation given. Draw near to God. It's also a command. Let us draw near to God. But notice that that command does not stand alone. It's not a standalone command. Notice what it's surrounded by. In that context, it's surrounded by gospel truths all around it. He doesn't just tell us what we're supposed to do, but he surrounds it by what God has already done for us. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, since a new and living way has been opened up for us, since we have a great high priest, since our hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience, let us draw near to God. We need to get this in the New Testament, under the New Covenant. Listen, obligations are always grounded in declarations. You didn't get that for you English majors. Imperatives are always soaked in indicatives. Exhortations to duty are always, always based on explanations of doctrine. What we should do is always predicated on what he has done. You get this? I mean, you say, well, give me some examples. Okay, since you asked so nicely. The Bible says forgive others, right? Command, forgive others. Why? Because God in Christ forgave you. The Bible doesn't divorce commands from declarations. It always welds them together. The Bible says flee immorality. It's a command. Stop having sex with people who are not your spouse. Why? Because you were bought with a price. You were purchased. You are not your own. So there's a gospel obligation surrounded and undergirded by a gospel declaration. The Bible says give. Give generously. Give your money away. (laughs) Give to the work of God. But it doesn't stand alone. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You see, the New Testament is not just moralistic. The New Testament doesn't just tell people to behave better. 
All religions do that. All religions teach ethics. Do good, do right, behave, don't do bad stuff. All religions teach that. What sets Christianity apart? Many things, but primarily because its ethical teachings are grounded in, based upon, undergirded by huge, massive, mind-blowing statements about what God has done for his people in Christ. And rehearsing those gospel truths is fuel for our obedience. Thank God that the writer of Hebrews didn't just wail on us and hammer us with the truth that we should pray more. How many of you know you should pray more? You know that already, right? We know that. He didn't just yell out at us, you people don't pray enough, what's the matter with you? God deserves it and you need it, so do it. It's not what we find. That would just be giving us law. And listen, while law is good and necessary, it's also inadequate and impotent. Why? Because law doesn't give us, doesn't impart to us any desire or power to keep it. Just command after command, exhortation after exhortation doesn't give us any fuel for our souls to want to keep it. The law does not impart desire or power. But the gospel, the Bible says, is the power of God to salvation. Not just conversion, but salvation, the whole deal. And I'm seeing this in our church as more and more of you are coming alive to the reality of the gospel and, 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 and it's bearing fruit in, in your life and you're saying, you know, I want to give. I want to serve. I want to give back. I want to go because I can't believe what Jesus Christ has done for me. Nothing else makes sense. It's beautiful. I've discovered that preaching a steady diet of law to God's people leads to one of two things, defeat or pride. You either walk away feeling defeated because you know you can never live up to what God wants, or you walk away comparing yourselves to other people who don't pray as much as you do and you start feeling superior to them. Some of you say, well, God gave us the law, didn't he? Yeah, he gave us law. That's true. But he didn't only give us law. He gave us Jesus. He gave us grace. He gave us gospel. And the gospel of grace, as I said, is the power of salvation for all who believe it, including, listen, the power to live joyfully under the approval of a holy God who does require perfection for those who would approach him and yet in his mercy accepts the perfection of his own son in our place. Man, this is good. <laughs> That's why the gospel is called good news, not okay news, not decent news, but good news. And when you get this, grace starts to really seem amazing. And so I say to all of us today, let us draw near to God. Let's come close. Now I lay me down to sleep. That's a good start. Okay. But there's more. There's a lot more. Dear God, please have control of my dreams and thoughts tonight so I'm not scared. Well, sure. That's a good pray, absolutely. But not just control of my dreams and thoughts, control of everything about me. My loves, my passions, my inclinations, my decisions, my relationships, my affections. God, please get me out of this mess. 
Well, sure, that's a normal prayer to pray when you're in trouble. But what do you say to God when things seem to be going fine? Is there anything to say to God then? God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Well, sure, let's do that. Let's do that. But you know what? Being taken by the hand of our great high priest and led through the thick veil that he ripped open with his own hands to commune with the holy God in the holy of holies, that's so much more than God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. There's more there. So let's go on this journey together, amen? Let's ask the Lord to open our hearts to seeing him and prayer in a new light, perhaps. Let's be humble enough to repent when he shows us where our thinking is out of alignment with his thinking. And let's enjoy the privilege of access purchased for us with blood. Well, as I said earlier, in just a, a moment, we're going to pray for some special groups of people among us today. But before we do that, let's take a minute and just thank Jesus for making access available to us. You know, I think as God's kids, it's okay to just kind of bop into his presence and, you know, talk to him and ask for things. That's all okay. But I do think he wants us to be ever mindful of what got us that access, of what it cost his son. So could we take a minute of silence and just each of us from where we sit, just thank Jesus Christ for allowing his flesh to be torn open for us so that the veil might be ripped open, that we might have access all the way in. Okay, let's do that. Lord, I wish that was the glory cloud of your presence coming over us, rinsing us clean. Lord Jesus Christ, you did for us what we could never have done for ourselves. And while our culture tells us, bombards us with the message every day that it's all about how hard we're trying and what our performance is and measuring up, when we look into your holy word, it tells us that you did it all for us. That it's not our performance for you that really matters. It's your performance for us. And that we have simply to receive and rest in your grace. Lord, this privilege that we've started to talk about this weekend of 
entering into the Holy of Holies. It's, it's mysterious to us, Lord. We don't have tabernacles and altars and labors and washings and blood sacrifices. We probably would have understood it better if we lived in that era, but we live in this era and we pray that you would give us mental images and pictures born out of your word that would help us to understand the pattern that you designed for your people to approach you. We thank you, Jesus, for being our sacrificial lamb, spilling your blood for our sins to atone for them and for being our high priest, our mediator, who entered into the heavenly holy of holies with a bowl full of his own blood and sprinkled it on the heavenly mercy seat in payment for our sins. We're mystified by it, but we seek to believe it and to live in that reality, Lord. So thank you for access. May we engage in this priceless privilege often, individually and together as a church. And I offer this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.